Hello and welcome back to season two of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I am joined as ever by my co-host, Will. Hey, Patch, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Look at this, we're back. We're in season two of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. I know, I can't believe it. You know, it's the, mad, yeah. There was a bit touch and go for a while with the commissioners, like, you know, with COVID <laughs> and the lockdowns, but, you know, they just saw the quality and they thought, did they did the higher it. ups the board the board really saw <laughs> as well. um but yeah we are back for another season if you're new to the podcast um this is the click and dagger podcast where we talk about uh, assassins and assassinations from history and we've been really excited about this we've got a lot of really good response um from last season um and we're so glad that so many people listen to it or anyone listened to it to be honest i i told you before i'd been happy if three people listen to it because there's two of us so if three people listen to it that's that feels net positive that feels yeah but in order we both have partners so all we'd have to do is convince one of our partners to take an interest <laughs> in what we're doing yeah yeah that, that's true i guess it's more about yeah trying to get people who aren't our friends and family to listen to it which i think we have which is nice yeah i remember there's someone listening from america who we've worked out cannot be any of our relatives and when we first saw that on the spike i was like mm. <gasps> Patrick, we have our first <laughs> listener who isn't one of our one of our first friends. real listener, and it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, interesting that it comes from America, but I guess it's podcast. And actually, this season we've got uh, we've got a few more uh, American centric um, assassinations. So if you are from America and you're listening in, stay tuned, and you can hear a bit about some assassinations in your country. Um, but yeah, yeah, I also saw that we had someone from Australia, um, and I think it was played on a Amazon Alexa. Which I don't know why. Anyway. It felt quite nice that, you know, halfway across the world, our voices are just ringing out in some Aussie's house, which felt quite cool. Um, you know, it's not just a in-ear as they're on the on a train to work. It's like, it's, yeah. it's just, it's weird. I remember someone got in touch with me and told me that um, they listened to our podcast while he's painting. He's an artist. So that, I just oh. think it's hilarious that our voices are the right medium for, I don't know what kind of artist he was, but... Yeah, it's quite funny. I hope we're zen enough. He ends up painting everything in red and really aggressively. <laughs> yeah. So today's episode, um, I am taking the reins and we will be looking at who are possibly the most famous assassins um, and covert operatives of any time in history, I think. Certainly like the most well-known, the most well-talked about and probably the most highly featured in fiction all across the world, because today we will be talking about the ninja of feudal Japan. Oh, I'm looking forward to this one. Yes. From the very beginning, we knew we had to do an episode on the ninja because they are just like the elitist of the elite of assassins and black ops operatives. So, so yeah, so let's dive right into it. Let's do it. So, as I said, ninja of feudal Japan, possibly the most well-known um, assassins throughout history. Now, the word ninja, I'll be using the word ninja, although it is a bit contentious exactly how to describe these individuals, because ninja is actually sort of an ancient medieval Chinese pronunciation of uh, the word ninja, of the characters that, that create the word ninja. Um, oh. It's actually a Japanese phrase that can be kind of roughly translated as one skilled in stealth. So it's kind of this combination oh, okay. of, of of words and characters that create this word. And it is the original pronunciation possibly would have been shinobi, um, which lots of people use as well. However, um, 
these warriors, these kind of covert operatives, had lots of different names depending on region uh, and time period. So using shinobi could be slightly anachronistic at certain times, and so I've decided to stick with ninja, because although it is very anachronistic and actually, you know, technically a mispronunciation, it's what everyone knows them as, um, and it's a kind yeah, of all-encompassing term. And there is no one correct term, really, so it's kind of okay to use this overarching term. However, there's a chance I might accidentally use shinobi just because you know i'm not perfect um so these warriors aren't a specific sect or a group they are essentially a description of a type of warrior who um, specialized in covert tactics including espionage sabotage and of course assassinations it was kind of referred to as irregular warfare as opposed to the sort of more honorable regular warfare which was the sort of purview of their other of the other very famous warriors of feudal Japan, the samurai. And so mm. just like the samurai who, you know, they were a class of warrior, they weren't a specific group. And, you know, all of the uh, armies in the land would, would contain samurai. Um, it's the same for the ninja. They are sort of a type of warrior as opposed to a specific group. Fair enough. Good to know. Good to know. And kind of the... The origins of them were as guerrilla warfare fighters. So rather than in a sort of standard fight coming up against powerful samurai forces, slightly smaller regions would employ guerrilla tactics, surprise attacks, you know, camouflaging themselves and attacking. And this is kind of where the idea of a ninja came about. They weren't immediately covert operatives all dressed in black. They were kind of just guerrilla fighters that were doing the best they can. And likely quite poor regions would have to do this. You know, they couldn't afford expensive armour um, and at this time expensive firearms because although we like to think of them as just you know, using um, swords and knives, guns were very prevalent at this time because we're looking at the sort of 15th century um, of feudal Japan. And at this time, European traders had come over and were starting to sell weapons. The arquebus was being sold, which is a kind of earlier version of a musket, this kind of long firearm. And so it, all these kind of tactics were kind of encompassed by these guerrilla forces. And they were so effective um, that they started to become uh, known throughout Japan as these kind of possibly dishonorable warriors. But although people kind of didn't see them as, you know, put them in high regard as samurai, they were still used everywhere because they were so effective and so important to warfare. I think that's really interesting, don't you think? Like, when and I don't know much about Japan, so everything I'm saying here, I'm caveating with my ignorance. But when I think of <laughs> Japan, that is the, the one that has been sort of forced on me by Hollywood, let's say, and things like that, you think of the samurai as incredibly honorable and Japan in general just being very caught up in an honor system. But it's a bit like the yin yang. You've got the samurai who are very publicly dutiful and sort of flashy and then yeah on the other on the flip side you've got these like cloak and dagger pardon the pun, oh, pardon mm -hmm. the, the link um these guys who are just underneath who are doing all like this sort of guerrilla warfare i think it's just fascinating that you have that real dichotomy of war yeah 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 they were also quite uh um because although it was certain regions that used them they were also hired as mercenaries so you had the uh daimyo um which if you don't know uh, are the kind of feudal lords of japan so in lots of time periods, you know, they were just like everywhere in the world, the aristocracy and the nobles getting all the farmers together to form an army. They were constantly at war with each other and they would hire um, these ninjas to help them defeat their enemies because they were such a useful force. Um, and they would even go on to be used by some of the shoguns, which also, if you don't know, a shogun is 
it's not quite a king. So the so Japan has always had this, this eternal emperor, and so the emperor is always technically in charge, but a shogun is this kind of military dictator that would be the de facto ruler of the country and would rule on behalf of the emperor, who was kind of a lot of the time more like a figurehead than an actual leader. But both daimyo and shogun would make quite a lot of use out of these ninjas. So, as I said, it is difficult to pinpoint exactly when the ninja began. However, there is a kind of starting point where they really started to take uh, prevalence throughout um, Japan. And it is in around the 15th century, in a period which was known as the Muromachi period, which when Japan was under the rule of the Ashikaga shogunate. And so this was a time period, and actually towards the end of it was leading up to a very violent time um, in uh, Japan's history um, that would go on to be called the Sengoku period, um, that would kind of came at the end of this time. Um, and it was in this kind of era of lots of warfare that the ninja kind of as guerrilla fighters really began. And they began in two places in particular, the Iga province, which is modern-day Mie prefecture in okay. Japan. A prefecture, I guess, is just an area ruled by a prefect. It's kind of the way that modern Japan is split up into. And the Koga region, which is in modern-day Shiga prefecture. And what's interesting is that both these areas were mountainous regions, quite secluded um, and quite protected from the surrounding areas. And through a lot of this time, they both resisted the Ashikaga shogunate, and they did it through guerrilla warfare techniques. And what I find really oh. interesting about this is that there's so much similarities with the Nizari Ismaili assassins from, from episode our first episode. one, from the last episode. These uh. mountainous uh, regions are where these grand warriors come from. Um, these kind of secluded areas that can resist the rule of these larger empires around them. I think that's, yeah, I think that what I didn't expect going into doing this uh, podcast series was that we're actually starting to work out the tropes that you need to set up an assassin sect in the Middle Ages across the planet. And yeah. one thing that does recur a lot is living in a place which is hard to attack, which tends to be in a mountain range, because mm. actually the close look, which I'll come to later, um, it's a very similar story. But yeah, yeah. I'll leave that to then. I also think that the the mountain ranges are so uh, dramatic. Most well, most mountain ranges are very dramatic, which probably adds to the mysticism and sort of the legend of these sects because it's like, oh, they live. They don't live in like grassy fields with meadows. It's mm. like in these harsh conditions, and you know, it's like, oh my god, these guys just to live up here must be pretty like gnarly, you know? Absolutely. I mean, living. I mean, and that might add to it is the fact that living in mountainous uh, regions is difficult and the people who were there were hardy folk who learned to survive and learned to um, cope through harsh, awful temperatures, difficult, probably awful winters and all that sort of stuff and it turns them into a very strong people who can become master assassins and ninja. It's actually the same, actually, just reminded me of, um, but you know, in, in, in Norway, Viking period of Norway, the mm. berserkers would live alone or in small groups in isolated areas so you'd have yeah. to travel to them to hire them or to because you would hire them it's the same thing there's a real there's a real sense here well, of like because sparta is also in mountains isn't it is it i think i believe so if i'm okay. wrong i'll cut this out but um i'm fairly <laughs> sure that i'm fairly sure sparta is 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 in a mountainous kind of secluded area so clearly mountains are where you get elite warriors Really yeah. powerful warriors. No wonder there are none mountains. in this country because we haven't got yeah. any mountains. 
<laughs> bunch of planes. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing. The closest we get is a bunch of kind of. The well, we get the, the, yeah, they get the Pennines, and we get there's, there's some mountains in some Scotland. Gentle hills yeah. for anyone who's never been to the, to England. <laughs> you cannot call the Pennines mountains. Um, oh but it's but you know it, and it's also but you also get these smaller states that need to protect themselves possibly through uh, more unusual means. Maybe it's just simply because you know a, a smaller region protected by mountains can use these sort of alternative irregular warfare tactics. Whereas you know if you're living in uh, very flat plains, all you can do is fight in a normal fight. You know, you, all yeah. you can do is have cavalry charges or proper battles, or and you will also be conquered quite easily by larger forces. And these bigger empires, they uh, are more willing to just throw money at more soldiers as opposed to specialized soldiers. Because yeah. in the long run, even though I mean, although we brought up Spartans, actually the ninja are, are, are famous for this as well about fighting off larger forces. Eventually, you will lose to a larger force, and so the larger uh, empires will always just hire more soldiers as opposed to. You know, really impressive soldiers. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So mountainous regions. So if you want to be a warrior, go live in a mountain. There you go. Um, Batman did it. Batman. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, well, actually, I mean, you bring up Batman. I think Batman is supposedly trained by ninjas, so he's basically yeah, a ninja. That's true. Actually. So, yeah, um, yeah. so the main tactics a lot of these um, ninja would use, as I've said, are kind of as spies and scouts and surprise attackers. All this kind of irregular warfare they were really useful for. Um, gathering intelligence was a huge part of their job. You know, they would infiltrate enemy provinces and just live among the people there, picking up information and sending it back to their leaders and their masters so that people could operate and, you know, make war upon each other with all the information they needed. Yeah. Um, but they also got into some really, like, uh, all sorts of really crazy tactics. Arson was a particular favourite of um, the ninja, so they would be going into castles and lighting them on fire or sneaking into enemy camps and destroying all their weapons and, and just lighting everything on fire and killing scores of men without being noticed. And it kind of builds up this image of the ninja as these terrifying attackers. They're like ghosts, aren't they? That's the idea. Very like they're ghosts. meant to be very quiet. Yeah, shadows. Yeah, yeah shadows. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. fascinating. So yeah, all these irregular warfare tactics were used. They, um, as I said before, they disguises were a huge part of their job because so much of it was espionage, um, and they could disguise themselves as enemy soldiers um, inside a castle or inside an enemy encampment, so they could slip by unnoticed. Um, when they were moving around regions, they could also be uh, they would disguise themselves as what are known as yamabushi, which are these sort of religious mountain hermits that were kind of very popular. Well, popular. They were very common throughout Japan um, and they were kind of given access. They were allowed to wander freely because they were kind of treated with a lot of respect, which is perfect cover for for a ninja, you know, able to just kind of go anywhere. Yeah. But they would also um, dress up as Buddhist monks who were also given a lot of reverence and would actually be invited into people's homes to give prayers, which gives a perfect opportunity for, um, for a ninja to strike, which again... Very similar to the assassins of Masayaf. I mean, we've got to stop all these comparisons. There's so many. It's ridiculous. It, honestly, that was that was a huge put, um, takeaway when I was doing the research here. They are very similar, and I guess it's these are very common tactics. You know, disguise is so important more than you know uh, a sleek black suit to slip by unnoticed. Actually, if you can hide in plain sight, it's a lot more effective. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There were also a female ninja, and actually they'd undergo a lot of the same training as male ninja but their use was more for infiltration espionage and information gathering so rather than you know 
striking or, or yeah rather than you know assassinating foes or burning down castles or anything a bit more combative they were planted as uh, informants in rival families uh, homes as um as servants, servants or as as geishas um and they would just sit there and lie in wait and report back to their to their operatives but yeah they had there was they have a simple name which is kunoichi which is uh, the term for a female um, ninja. So they were, it, they, it wasn't just like an unusual um, element. They were used to a lot of effect. Yeah, yeah, wow. So moving on to what I think and what many people think is the most interesting part of uh, the ninja mythos, which is the ninja uh, equipment and the ninja weapons. Oh, because yeah, really when yeah, you yeah. think of when you think of ninja, you think of throwing stars and you think of katanas and you think of all sorts of cool gadgets i mean really more than any other assassins that we've talked about these guys were so into their equipment and their gadgets and to really give them an edge in all sorts of combat and uh stealth missions so um there is a bit of a misnomer so a lot of the kind of idea of a ninja of all dressed in black actually comes from theater so japanese theater a, a stagehand would be dressed all in black to indicate to the audience that they're not really there they're kind of invisible so you know they would be there picking up a you know changing the set or moving things around yeah. and it would indicate to the audience that they're invisible and in some of these productions a ninja that was part of the story and it would be a kind of you know a great moment for the audience to see that this individual who you're kind of supposed to see is just the background suddenly stabs someone and so that's kind of where the idea of these black clothes ninjas I came see. from it came from theater from and so theater you can kind of about see them that's so yeah. cool like their own mythology comes from from like their version of hollywood back in the day anyway so absolutely yeah, yeah. That's so cool. yeah. yeah. It, nice. I mean, we think that the ninja, you know, uh, all the stories of them, you know, I, th I think when I went to this, I was imagining, oh, lots of the stories will be very westernized. And although a lot of the stories about the ninja are incorrect, it's actually just from legends from uh, medieval Japan. Like even back then, they didn't have a firm idea of what ninja were and were creating fantastical stories about these warriors <laughs> because they were just so elusive and so secretive and so interesting to so many people. Um, yeah. In reality, the uh, sort of armor of a real ninja would be um, more plain clothes, um, probably darker, although it might also be different colors uh, depending on certain camouflage techniques. So if you're out in the woods, all black wouldn't really help you. You want to blend yeah, in no. with your surroundings. Um, and it would be kind of like a simple jacket and trousers that you would see modern day martial artists wear, kind of like judo attire, that same sort of uh, Japanese uh, martial attire. Possibly some light chain mail under um, clothing so as not to catch the light, but also to lend them a bit of protection. Very lightweight, uh, nothing uh, dragging or um, dangling so it could snag while they're running away or sneaking in. Um, okay. And like I said, possibly dark, but kind of dependent on where they were. And actually a lot of the time, because it was guerrilla warfare, they would be uh, covered in sort of reeds and stuff like that to blend in with their sur surroundings, kind of like ghillie suits. Uh, Sort well, of thing. it's interesting you should say that. I, I've, I've just realised that these guys are operating in, what was it, the 14th, 15th centuries. European armies are still using red coats and blue coats all the way into the 1900s, oh, just before World War One. Camouflage isn't thought of as a mainstay of, a, of an army until around that period. And they're like doing this 300 years before. You know, yeah. that's just so advanced. Wow, I didn't... That is... I mean, you'd think that's kind of an obvious technique, but I guess I, I think the other thing is it's because it is considered dishonourable. 
and yeah. and you know the, and japan had that but they were just willing to accept uh dishonorable techniques especially in such bloody times um as as the sengoku period which is where the ninja was so prevalent so that's the armor now onto the weapons which is where we get really cool stuff so the sword um will will have been a katana um i know that there's some debate over around uh, whether it's uh, ninjas would use katana because they are the purview of samurai but it would have likely been a version of the katana likely a bit shorter and straighter for sort of maneuverability and just for ease of use yeah it also may have sometimes been worn on the back which is very unique because actually i mean lots of you know uh fiction and video games people wear swords on the back which um lots of people have done videos online it's terrible erroneous. idea no one it, ever did that <laughs> that's the thing well the reason you can't is because if the sword is longer than your arm which in most of the times it is you can't pull it out because it will go you just extend your arm out and it's still in the scabbard <laughs> yeah. but ninja there's a chance that ninja did and their swords were short enough so that they could pull them out from the back because they didn't want them on their sides because they could knock against things while they're climbing it's a kind of hidden out the way place um, on their back. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. But the swords also had kind of more purpose than just combat. They would also be used um, outside of combats to help them traverse through the world. They were known to lay them against walls to create a handy foothold um, to run up a wall. So, And they were strong blades. Perhaps this is also why they were made straight. Um, so they wouldn't bow or bend. I mean, but you know, samurai and katana blades are very strong. But yeah, they would lean them up against a wall and just leap off them and then lean down and grab them. Oh, that's so cool. They also did a really cool thing, which is, I'll try and explain it properly, but essentially when they were sneaking around dark uh, areas, they would balance the scabbard of the blade at the tip of the katana blade. So to extend the reach, and obviously, you know, the, 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 the latter half of it is just um, a scabbard, not going to do damage but it would be a kind of uh, probing device. So in dark uh, interiors, they could lean it out and point it in the direction they're moving. And if it tapped against someone that turned out to be a person, they could quickly flick the scabbard off and stab at where they'd hit to quickly oh, take I out. See. So they'd use this as a kind of detection method for anyone um, in, in the dark proximity. around them. Yeah, wow, that's so cool. So yeah, so they really got use out of their swords. So they weren't just these tools for combat. They used them uh, wherever they could. Yeah. Another really important tool in the ninja's tool belt was, of course, a type of grappling hook. So they're constantly scaling walls and, and moats and anything, and grappling hooks would be very often used. So it's just like a uh, an iron hook at the end of a long, thin, but quite strong rope that they could wing over a castle wall and climb over. You know what's so interesting? Both those things. So using the swords that way and having them on their backs and the grappling hook, you see that in so many different um, Hollywood dramas and, and different different guises. It's so refreshing that for once I'm not going to go, ah, oh, that didn't happen, but it actually did. This is like the ninja like ethos and using those methods. They were using those methods. It's just so fascinating to see to imagine them doing it. You know? mm, mm. So uh, there would be some other um, things they would use. The shuriken, which is a throwing star um which is a yeah, four-pointed um little throwing star that could they would be able to throw at really great accuracy at short range you know it's not quite good as a bow but for small encounters they could quickly throw it and take out a guard or at least distract a guard quick enough that they could move in for a final blow of the sword that is um, terrifying <laughs> there's yeah there's also these things called the tetsubishi um which are do you know what a caltrop 
is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, yeah, so these little iron spikes that are essentially, they're in these kind of shapes, uh, a bit like a pyramid, but all the spikes pointing outwards. So no matter which way they were they were dropped, whichever they were point, they would always be a sharp iron point pointing up. And samurai yeah. tended to wear very thin-soled shoes. And so if you were being chased by a, uh, by a group of samurai or soldiers, throw a couple of those behind or a handful of those behind and someone will get an iron spike through their foot and they will you know stop what? chasing you. Yeah, it's like when you like, you know when you stand on a piece of Lego? Yes, it's like that, but <laughs> so much worse. <laughs> it's like that, but the Lego goes through your foot. So <laughs> Yeah, no, that's But yeah. Helpful. And what's interesting is actually they could use uh the dried seed pod of a water chestnut. Could also it's not quite as uh destructive um but the though these little seed pods would be able to land and would be very spiky and so they ah. could pierce um some very flimsy shoes and at That's least slow down your opponents maybe not disable them in the way that an iron spike would um no. but if you needed a, a cheap and easy getaway that was a great um tool to use mm. That's good. So those are kind of the sort of standard equipment that uh, Ninja will use, but there are some more uh, unique and interesting ones that I wanted to uh, dive into because there's just... I mean, I I could talk for hours about the equipment that Ninja (laughs) have used. So one of the cool weapons is called a Kusarigama, which is a really interesting weapon. It's essentially a chained sickle. So it's a short uh, handle with a kind of sickle blade at the end, and at the other end was a long chain and a heavy weight at the end and it kind of created this dual action weapon where the chain could be spun around really fast and either strike uh, your opponent on the head doing a lot of damage or could be whipped around uh, your opponent's leg and you could then yank them over and then move in to strike them with a sickle so it's kind of this dual action weapon and I'll include an image of it in the Instagram and I assume you, you're looking at it um, down below. I am. They are brutal looking. Deadly looking weapons yeah. Yeah. There is also the Hokode, which are essentially claws that they would, uh, they're kind of like <laughs> gloves uh, that they would slip over their hands and act as claws that they could use both for climbing, because um, they could grip into things a bit better, but also for combat. So for, you know, these kind, it oh kind of God. extends your, uh, un, I was going to say unarmed combat. It is armed, but, you know, it's almost like a knuckle duster. in that. Yeah, sort of way, I was where, thinking you know, of a knuckle duster, yeah. You know, you can get in close and, you know, they'd be very quick and easy to use because they're so, you know, the, the range is small, but you can manoeuvre them very easily because there's no long blade to to zip around. And it's also, I mean, that's quite terrifying. You know, I can only imagine the sort of the, the fear of, a, of an enemy soldier if they returned and saw not just, uh, you know, blade wounds and sword wounds, but like almost claw marks. You can kind of see why the ninja really got this sort of mythical... Um, idea around them and a legend yeah. because you'd see people clawed to pieces. I mean, even if you were attacked by them, you might later think, Was I attacked by an animal? I mean, I've got claw marks. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's if you were really lucky enough to survive. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Another cool um, piece of kit was something called a water spider, which is essentially, and uh, there'll be an image of it because it's hard to explain, but it's a kind of piece of wood that would be surrounded by a, a kind of wheel of other pieces of wood that you would attach to the bottom of your shoe, and it would essentially widen your surface area, um, a bit like a snowshoe. Oh, right. And in legend, it allowed ninjas to run across water. 
that's not actually possible. And so more <laughs> likely it was used to cross swampy land or maybe sort of rice paddy fields. Um, you okay. know, not quite pure water, but would, a- would allow them to move very quickly across surfaces which other people would be get bogged down in. Um, but yeah, there is this kind of legend that they get. And it, actually, it's probably from this that we get the legend that ninja can run across water. Um, you know, see. they move so fast. What I find amazing about all of these inventions is a lot of them are about evading. It's not just about uh, the fighting. I mean, obviously the claws and things, but like throwing down chestnut seeds and then like trying to cross the water if you need to or use your sword to get over a wall or use a rope dart to get you up a wall or a grappling hook. They're all very much... It all comes across as uh for the need for speed mm. and and mm. it's not it's they're lightning attacks and then get the hell out of there that's what it sounds like you know you're yeah. not yeah yeah get whereas in, like the samurai come as across as, as quite can. slow and lumbering and but also once you're there you're in trouble kind of thing but like the yeah, ninja yeah. Are like the opposite they're so quick well the you know the ninja sorry the the samurai the idea is that you know who you're fighting you show yeah. to your enemy this is who i am I will allow you, you know, samurai would allow enemies uh, to get dressed and get ready for the battle. It was an honourable duel. The ninja are not about that. They are about using any advantage they can take Yeah. to get in as quickly as possible, to take out who they need to take out as quickly as possible, and then get out as quickly as possible. Terrifying. And because, you know, a lot of these techniques also, you know, it, you could be seen as, uh, as techniques to get away from enemies, but it might not just be to retreat, but simply to get further into a compound or a fortress to find your target. Um, mm. There's actually a really cool technique that they would use with the sword, where they would pack uh, a combination of red pepper, dirt, dust, and iron fillings uh, near the top of the scabbard. So when they drew their sword, there'd be this like, flash of this dust and caustic powder flying into the oh. face of their enemy which would disorientate them and allow them to get in close and finish them off almost immediately that's amazing yeah that's like having like pepper spray at the end of like your weapon and no one's expecting it either that is no. awesome and it's 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 as they draw it as well so you're all it's in you know you don't have to get it out and throw it and then draw your sword it's in one fluid motion um, I can I can imagine in those ninja schools how many uh, novices were going to like draw their swords and pepper spray themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do it wrong oh. and it flies back in your face. Another really cool bit is actually this, because the ninjas were so prevalent and so dangerous, we do have evidence of countermeasures that daimyos and shogun would use to protect themselves against ninja infiltration. Oh, really? One that I really like <laughs> is something called a nightingale floor which are essentially floors that are built to squeak loudly when walked upon. <laughs> so it'd be a right pain for everyone walking around because you can't see hear them, but it made it difficult for ninjas to, to sneak in because if it's late at night and you start hearing this sound, it was kind of using um, metal hinges and uh, hooks underneath the floorboard. So if you stepped on them, it would make this loud squeaking sound. And then they would but know. Can you imagine that, that you'd was have? Coming. Yeah, but can you imagine like how annoyed you'd be if you never got attacked by ninjas, and the whole time you're just like <laughs> hearing this squeaky castle? <laughs> I'd be so. Well, you never off. know. They might think, well, then it worked. You know, the ninja found out that we had nightingale floors, and actually we've been protected. Because the idea is that you prevent them coming. Yeah. No, no, no. I know. But can you imagine some daimyo like dad going, "Oh, see, although we've got it, like at least you're not going to get killed by a ninja." You can just imagine mm. the kids mm. getting really pissed off because they can't sneak <laughs> out at night to go drink yeah. sake or whatever. Yeah, exactly. 
So as I said before, the ninja were particularly used in the Sengoku period, but essentially this time of massive civil war throughout Japan. It's kind of uh, 15th and 16th century. But I have found one interesting story um, about... So, uh, uh, it's not an assassination, but is uh, ninjas doing what ninjas do best. Oh, and it is it is uh, in service um, to a daimyo called Tokugawa Ieyasu, who would actually go on oh. to form the Tokugawa Shogunate and would actually uh, lead into the Edo period, a really long period of peace. He's like the most. He's the one of the most. He's like the father figure, one of the father figures of Japan, like Ieyasu. Yeah. he's so famous. Yeah, so. At this time, he's actually considered one of the uh, unifiers of Japan because he came about um, during the Sengoku period where there was no shogun really in power. Everyone was at war with each other. And at this time, he was fighting against one of the other, what was called unifiers um, of the land, a warlord named Oda Nobunaga, who's also another famous warlord and kind of legend from Japanese history and yeah. he's quite a bloody uh, he's he's like a conqueror he's a bit of a maniac to be honest but during uh, Oda Nobunaga's quest for conquest Tokugawa Ieyasu actually wanted to swap sides and join with Oda Nobunaga um, but in order to do so he needed to have a secure a very swift victory against his at that time allies because his allies who were the Imagawa clan, held quite a few of Tokugawa's family hostage. At that oh, time, okay. maybe not quite hostage because they're allies, but, you know, his uh, his wife and his son was uh, held by the Imagawa clan and would be immediately executed if Tokugawa at any point showed even a hint of changing his allegiance. So he needed to act, and he, but he needed to switch sides because he was on the losing side and he needed to swap to join with uh, Oda Nobunaga to survive. And so he decided that he needed to take over Kaminojo Castle, which was one of uh, the Imagawa's clan's western fortresses. Um, okay. And if he did so, if he did so quickly and efficiently, he would be able to capture some of the hostages um, held there and actually use them to trade for his own family. So he would, you know, oh, very quickly okay. secure this um, uh, fortress for Oda Nobunaga and ingratiate him on this on uh, with his enemies, um, but also gain some hostages he could use to trade for his own family. But to do gotcha. this, he'd have to do it very quickly because if word got out that he'd switched sides, his family would be executed. Sure. And Kaminojo Castle was built upon a formidable precipice um, in the mountains, very difficult to uh, to take over, um, and it would be nigh impossible to capture by traditional means, especially as quickly as he needed to do it. So he turned to the ninjas. He uh, summoned a man from the Koga clan um, called Tomo Sukesada. And so Tomo Sukesada brought with him 80 ninja to Tokugawa's side. And under the cover of darkness, uh, this ninja, this small ninja force infiltrated the castle and began to set fires throughout the fortress. So they made it inside the fortress and began lighting everything on fire to so descent and really cause chaos. Gotcha. Good idea. When they got inside, they made as little noise as possible so that the defenders were actually kind of unaware that they were under attack. They just thought there were fires being lit and it was possibly members from their, uh, you know, 
traitors within their own ranks because there was no indication that there was any enemy force invading, oh, okay. which again really Very throws clever. throws them into um, into disarray. The ninja were also dressed as the defenders and were using a password to communicate with each other. So while the defenders were running around, putting out the fires, some of them were being burned alive because being caught in these fires. The soldiers they were talking to, some of them may have been the ninja who were causing oh all this destruction. God. And the ninja were communicating each other with these passwords. So what a head fuck. Yeah, yeah, really messed up. And this is really showing the, the, the prowess of the ninja. This is what they did so well. Yeah. They could really, they could, you know, this was an impregnable fortress. But once you have men on the inside who you don't know who they are, they're invisible to you, they can do so much destruction. Sure, yeah. So after a time, you know, the garrison kind of realise they're under attack, uh, under attack properly, but are completely disabled and are almost uh, entirely defeated at this point. And Tomosukusada, the leader of the ninja, actually seeks out the commander of the castle, a man named Udona Nagamochi, um, and found him at the Hall of Prayers, the sort of holy site within the castle. And he sneaks up behind him and beheads him with a spear. So there's oh an assassination, kind of, although it's during an attack. Beheads him with a spear. Now, I have never tried to behead anyone in my lifetime, but with hmm. a spear sounds pretty difficult. <laughs> so I believe, I mean, this is the way it's described um, by some uh, Japanese historians. And from what I understand it is that the uh, a Japanese spear is maybe a bit more like a glaive. The spear, the blade at the oh. end is longer and is more like a short katana. As opposed to a sh- very small, like almost like an arrowhead, which is a lot of spears. Gotcha. Are. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's an aganata. That's the name of the of uh, of the yes. glaive. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, I've seen that's them. most likely what was you, what he was going to use. Okay. Um, and so yeah, so he sneaks up behind him and beheads him with a spear, and with that, castle's in flame. The commander's dead. The uh, the lead ninja Tomo he's able to recover um, the commander's sons and then returns them to Tokugawa as hostages, which then Tokugawa can then use to get his family back. So it is this enormous success, this impregnable fortress that no army, no samurai could have got into. They might not have even been able to take it by traditional means at all, let alone take it in time for Tokugawa's family not to be killed, because they would have been executed immediately. If, yeah, if, but now he had these hostages to trade with, and I'm guessing that he was successful in then exchanging his family for these sons of the commander. Yes, absolutely. So he gets them back. I don't know if he gets them back straight away, but it's a kind of you know he now has hostages, so his family won't be executed. Gotcha. But as you know, and as lots of people who know about Japanese history, uh, Oda Nobunaga eventually dies. There's a few more uh, tussles for power, but Ieyasu comes out on top and starts the Tokugawa shogunate. Um, Which is actually... to get there like 400 years, isn't it? The shogunate of the Tokugawa? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it takes it, that, that starts the Edo period, which is one of the most peaceful times in Japanese history. So, and he takes over. And actually, this is actually kind of marks the end of the, of the real heyday for the ninja. Because as Tokugawa Ieyasu takes over, Japan is now moves into a time of peace and the ninja are no longer as needed. Um, as they were in the Sengoku period. And they kind of start to fade away. However, they're kind of, not really last hurrah, but they're treated as kind of heroes in Tokugawa's eyes and are actually hired as the personal guard for his palace in Edo, which oh, would cool. one day become Tokyo. Yeah. And it, was, and, and it was his capital during the Edo period. So, yeah, so he had such reverence for them that he hired them as his personal guard. 
But Ooh. what's interesting, because they're so successful in securing Tokugawa's reign, and actually they may have been what helped him secure such a peaceful reign, they start to fade away from history because they're no longer needed. And actually he sets up, uh, well, Tokugawa doesn't, but much later in sort of early 18th century, Tokugawa Yoshimune, um, a descendant of uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu, founded the Oniwaban, which uh, translates to the garden keepers, which are essentially an intelligence agency and a secret service. And many of the ninja and many people, historians nowadays, see these guys as a kind of successor to to ninja because they were kind oh. of brought in as a state secret service agency. I see. And wow. that's kind of where the, the ninja fade away. So... Weirdly enough, like although that they started off as dishonorable in the eyes of, um, say, feudal Japan, mm. they actually end up achieving honor and 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 becoming part of the system, um, mm. and they fade out in grace rather than in infamy. Unlike yeah. so many other, like you look at like the Nazari, you look at the Sakari, you look at you know the Vishikani, you, you don't hear about them ending well. This is like no. the first time we've heard them go into history with their heads held high it's quite interesting it's really interesting well that is a fascinating story i didn't know very much at all about that and i'm actually quite happy to hear that most well a number of the preconceptions i had were actually like based on truth so that's, that's what's cool. really amazing yeah they did you know a lot of the crazy stuff they were into is real it, it's yeah. not just i mean i mean there's also uh, legends that they could fly and could walk on water or, you know, throw fire from their hands and turn invisible, which obviously isn't true. But it kind of is because they were so effective um, that these legends uh, popped up around them because people were unable, you know, if you're a commander of a tent and they snuck in and kill your, killed your um, your men or, or or some of your other generals, you might think the only way they could have done that is they turned invisible. You just couldn't get your head around the idea of them being so effective. So they must be somehow supernatural. Yeah, but it, it makes for a great excuse to your garrison commander. Oh, it was the ninjas. You know, <laughs> they flew in on on wings and they breathed fire. And then yeah, how was I supposed died. to fight against this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't haven't had the training for that. Like, send me back yeah. to staff college. I'll try again. <laughs> um, yeah, no, oh, really cool, really cool. But yeah, so that is that is the ninja. Should we move on to the closer look? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, for this week's closer look, and if you, you're new to the podcast, um, every week we take a closer look, a sort of deeper dive into some element of the story, that uh, the assassination story that we were telling. Um, and this week we have decided to look into other notorious or maybe infamous uh, warriors of Japan. So, Will, do you want to take us away? Yeah, sure. So, for me this week, I thought I'd look into a. It might sound a bit funny, but into a Buddhist monk sect known as the Sohei, the Sohei monks. Now, normally, when you think of Buddhism, Buddhism is one of the most peaceful religions you can find out there. I mean, we've spoken at length in season one about how like religion can play a big role in, in violence. We had to look at Islam and Christianity especially. They're very, in, in their own ways and at certain times in their history, they've been incredibly militant. But what you don't hear about very often is Buddhism being used as a uh, with its own militant wing. But uh, this is what happens today. So the Sohei monks are the ones we're looking into. And I thought I'd start with a quote. So this is from the cool. emperor of Japan, 
do not ask me which one because I can't remember the name of the guy. But this is what he said. There are three things beyond my control. The rapids on the Camo River, the dice at gambling, and the monks on the mountain. Ooh, cool. Yeah. So just like all these other assassin sects that we've spoken about before, these guys operated in mountainous regions. So just like... <laughs> Everyone else, they they got it. They got the uh, the memo on how to every great be successful. warrior has yeah. to come from a mountain. That's the exactly. only place. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Anyway, so um, when Buddhism, so Buddhism actually began in India, um, but by the time it reaches Japan, um, via the way of Korea, um, it's arriving in about the early tenth century. This is when the Sohei monks start to take off. Uh, and they're they're in existence all the way up until the 1570s and 1580s is when they really actually end. But the 15, we'll be focusing on the last couple of centuries of their of their of their time. Um, but basically, um, imagine they're literally they've been compared with the Templars. I know they're my favourite type of people, as you've probably <laughs> heard. But the Templars and actually the Nazari, there's lots of similarities between these guys, the Sohe monks, and these uh, other. Um, militant factions across across other faiths um, because basically they their Buddhist belief was very much part of uh, taking the defense of their faith to literally mean a call to arms so that okay and if you imagine Japan in this period of time which we would, it's in the same period of time that Patrick was just talking to you guys about um, this is when the Sohei monks are really in in their element because there was so much violence. You could, it would almost be impossible to be a peaceful a peaceful sect, you know. Um, so yeah, they they operated out of these mountainous uh, regions and out of temples, and they they kind of didn't ever have. They were never like all in one sect, a little bit like the ninjas. They were actually more like um, they were driven by doctrine. And there was one Buddhist monk in particular known as Renyo, who was a pacifist, ironically, uh, but ordered all Buddhist monasteries in Japan that he controlled to be well fortified and to be trained up against encroachment from other other warring factions. And right. what it basically boiled down to was the samurai and the daimyo. So the daimyo, as you mentioned earlier, Patrick, were the beginnings of sort of feudal Japan where you had warlords basically ruling the country. And the thing about Buddhist monks were that the emperors of Japan allowed them freedom, like full autonomy over their lands. So in a land grab period where the daimyos are starting to take off, the samurai class are really starting, the shogun are about to, you know, burst onto the scene, the Buddhist monks are, are, are like they're on a collision course with these with Oda Nobunaga and actually with um Tokugawa Ieyasu as well um they they don't like this sort of independent like mm. sex that they can't control a lot like yeah. actually Saladin was when he tried to take control of the Nazari in in the Middle East um and what's interesting is that these guys uh because they their basic doctrine their sort of uh what's the word what they took to as their version of Buddhism was that there was too much avarice and corruption already in the world for them, to, for no matter how much meditation, it wouldn't make any difference. That's what they believed. So, uh, yeah, so they were very, uh, they kind of dismiss a lot of Buddhist, Buddhist doctrine that you'd, uh, you'd associate with it today. And they didn't even practice celibacy and they would also drink alcohol. 
these guys seem like almost the opposite of Buddhists. They're like anti-Buddhists because they're they're pessimistic and think that we can't make the world a better place. And oh, really weird. I know, and it, well, it's born out of this constant warfare in Japan, which you didn't necessarily have where mm. Buddhism began in India and across China. You know, it was less yeah because the, the Japanese system was so so intense. You know, so that was possibly why. Um, but they were also they because they had these sort of they didn't have so many like discrepancies they 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 focused a lot more on warfare so every monk would have to craft seven arrows per day and uh, like every so that they'd be prepared for any attack and they were also remarkable metal metallurgists forging mm. their own weapons including arquebuses so like not on some sort of blueprint they would make their own weapons which wow. I think is really cool. Um, and they were they were a little bit like a mafia as well because they would um, the monks actually had a major interest in of all things money lending and sake brewing. They actually controlled eighty percent of all money lenders and sake brewers in Kyoto um, in the twelve eighties. <laughs> These so, guys really don't sound like monks. They no, really I know, sound... I know, but they but they would fiercely defend. If you said that to them, they would obviously have a problem with that. They, oh, they they do. Like you said, they do remind me of sort of Templars because they are these you know religious uh, militants who actually end up having a lot of power in sort of business arrangements. You know, like yeah. the Templars were bankers, and I assume probably ended up owning quite a bit of trade and became their own like entity it sounds like these monks uh were the same that they kind of they weren't just about the religion they became their own group their own sort of private group that had autonomy um yeah they do sound a bit like a mafia actually they are yeah and uh, actually just a little uh, the only difference i'd say between them and say something like the templars is that at least the templars had the pope as like a head figure whereas um these guys operated out of their own temples so there was no there was no higher power that they were answering to so yeah, this is quite an interesting sort of um, amount of thing. The other thing to include in this is that they believed that a great paradise awaited any monk who died in battle, which is a lot like the Nazari, although not in mm. their initiation. Um, so you know these guys are very much like very highly trained elite warriors, and I mean yeah. it sounds like because this is I mean the, the it sounds like Buddhist monks who've been influenced by uh, samurai. Because that's also a big thing in samurai that, you know, a samurai's duty is completed on his death. You know, they saw their death as the, the that was the right way. You know, if they die in battle, uh, which is actually is a common, you know, thought process across the world. That if you die in battle, that is an honorable way to die. And it is your the completion of your duty. So it's almost like these Buddhist monks have been, I mean, they would have been Japanese. So they're, it's although they're taking on Buddhist teachings, they the teachings are being looked through a lens of Japanese tradition and culture. And at this time, Japanese tradition and culture was all about warfare. So they've turned into sort of war monks, as opposed yeah, to Yeah, um, although monks. they would absolutely hate to be compared to the samurai. They absolutely hated them because they're the ones who are trying to take power away from them, their autonomy away. Yeah, um, yeah. Their main fortress HQ, their, uh, like Masia for the Nazari, let's say, was a place called Mount Hiei, and that was in uh, the central part of Japan, not probably far from where the the Iga and the uh, Kogolands mm. are. Um, and but there were five major monasteries in nearby mountains. So in this huge mountain range, you had these impregnable fortresses, which would last for five hundred years. You know, this is a long time through a very tumultuous period of time in the history of Japan, which they survive in, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought I'd quickly uh, tell you what they wear because I think it's quite interesting what weapons they'd use. So in terms of what they were wearing, they would wear kimono-like robes in layers, one right. over the other, usually white underneath and tan or saffron yellow on top. So like a Buddhist monk that you'd imagine seeing today. Mm-hmm. Um, Footwear-wise, I think this is really funny. They They either wore socks with wooden clogs or straw sandals. And when I first read that, I thought they wore the Tabi sock with the straw sandals. So they were like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. really, really like cringeworthy dad dad attire, you know? Yeah, yeah. Socks and sandals, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then on their head, they would fold and tie the white head cowl, which would be part of their um, their robe, over their head. and um, Or they would substitute it for a hachimaki uh, headband which would have inscriptions on it right across the top so it would mm. it would keep them safe uh and they would actually sometimes wear some forms of samurai armor so the plate armor that you'd see on the thing so that that's what they'd wear uh mm. and then in terms of weaponry they as i say they would make their own stuff um but one thing that they were always associated with was the naginata which we uh, we spoke about earlier which is like imagine like a pirate cutlass on the end of a very long spear pole which is exactly like what a glaive is, if you don't know what a glaive is. Um, and and mm. they could attack people from sort of a far away point. Uh, but they would also they would be using um, longbows, and then they would actually also be using uh, arquebuses towards the end of their time. Um, so they were very powerful, and they held a lot of sway with the, the, the people, like the, the people who were being downtrodden. But eventually, funnily enough, you mentioned Oda Nobunaga was one of the people who almost crushed the ninja. Well, he does crush these guys. So the Sohei monks right. finally piss off Nobunaga to the point where he storms the mountain of Mount Hiei with 30,000 samurai. And wow. and it lasted a long time, but eventually they were doomed and the temple went up in flames. They might have even used ninjas, who, knew, who knows? Um, but uh, many commit, instead of fighting to the death, which a lot of them did, uh, quite a few of them actually committed themselves to the flames to go up with their temple. So, like, wow. this is like your textbook crash and burn. If you're going to go out, you're going to go out with style kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's almost, and, yeah, never, you know, captain doesn't go, doesn't, uh, goes down with his ship. They were willing to stay and die with their temple. Exactly. Yeah. So that is, that's them. They, and what's interesting is that they, that, you know, Odin Nobunaga only survived two years after this before being murdered by a general, of a, a friend of his. And then you get the Tokugawa Ieyasu um, shogunate rises from the ashes. So this is at the very end. So suddenly, like you say, the ninja, ninja golden age comes to an end because you get the peacetime. These Buddhist monks come to an end because they are crushed by the precursor to Ieyasu. And then Odin Nobunaga dies as well. So suddenly it's a real end of an era and then you get this period of peace that reigns mm. out from there i just think it's fascinating yeah that's so interesting oh god i mean japan at this time and throughout history is just full of the most extraordinary yeah, warriors absolutely and i think this is just at uh, the tip of the iceberg so please go away and talk don't just go away <laughs> go away and and re- do your own research uh i really enjoy the kings and generals youtube channel which we've referenced before they've got a mm. whole load of stuff on lots of topics that we discuss um so check that mm. out um and yeah that 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 concludes my Brilliant. closer look 
yeah, so so that is the uh, end of episode one of season two of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. We hope you've liked it. Um, we hope uh, a few of you out there have followed us from season one and are enjoying uh, season two just as much. Uh, we'll be following the same schedule as we did for season one, going back and forth between us. Uh, next week it is obviously Will. Will, do you want to give us a sneak peek of what we'll be hearing about next week? Yeah, sure. Uh, so next week we will be travelling to ancient Egypt and a an only very recently unearthed murder of a certain pharaoh so tune in next week to hear about that it's really good oh I love ancient Egypt so very looking forward to that um but yeah thank you very much for listening we do have an instagram account um if you want to take a look at some of the images that we've talked about we post uh photos and imagery and some really cool stuff on our instagram account at cloak and dagger podcast so take a look uh there and you can see i'll put up the uh, there's some images of the weapons um that we talked about in today's episode and yeah follow us on instagram obviously um uh review us if you can wherever you listen to podcasts or just tell a friend it really helps out the show if more people know um about the podcast we really like it and we want to spread our history conversations as far and wide as we can because we really enjoy it. And actually, we've heard, we've got some people asking questions, especially on the Instagram account, and it's great to hear what you guys think. So keep up with that. That's really fun for us. Cool. See you next time. See you next time.